And thanks to Cryo Malt, local malt for local beer, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kierkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, or welcome back, I should say, to my good friend, regular co-host and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back for 2017. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Good to be back. It's um, 1st of January already. Is it? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> did you see what I did there? I do see what you, you said did there. Yeah, first week of January. Anyway, no, look, these things happen. What, what's the, uh, I, what's I, the official I, word? I didn't actually say not, first not the week of version. January. What's the official word? I, I, I didn't say first week of January, but uh, anyway, uh, we, we yeah, digress. I reckon you did. We're gone. No, I said, well, a first show for 2017. Not first yep. week. Anyway. Yeah. And I've got it written down here. We'll come back first week of January. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, but see, uh, see, see what you did there. Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Let's not bicker, because the children are listening now. Hopefully, oh, yeah, if okay, they haven't all tuned out. Fair enough. But uh, no, look, good, good as we discussed off air, and uh, we, I, I said in the podcast that we put to air last week or the, the week before last with um, Chuck Han. Before we came back this year, we wanted to sort of try and make sure that we had uh, things, you know, fully um, sorted so we can you know, come back and be bigger and better than ever. And uh, one of those things is uh, we, we lost our uh, part-time producer, Lockie Mack, uh, last year, um, who is now producing the morning on ABC Radio. But we've got the delightful Freya, who's uh, helping us out and is going to be lifting the content of the show. So that was the reason we, we didn't want to come back um, a little bit half-assed, um, although I suspect that we've done that a little bit anyway. But we are back and uh, better than ever, I hope, Prof. Mate, how was it? It has been a long time since we've chat. How was your Christmas and how was your summer hiatus? Uh, yeah, all lovely, all quite beer filled. Um, lots of catching up with family um, and a lot of sharing of what I consider to be kind of, I guess, uh, flagship or gold standard or, um, you know, 10 overs, none for 40, you know, line and length craft beers um, with people who were discovering those beers for the first time. And I think that that's a really. I don't know, it really tickles me. I think that, that's that's one of the great things about being in beer and, and it, it grounds you a little bit um, in that you can take some beers for granted and when you're given a beer that you, or somebody's tried a beer and they go, have you tried this? Have you ever, have you even heard of this beer? It's so cool. And you go, yeah, I've kind of been there, done that, moved on. Um, and it gives you, I think, a better appreciation for um, the overall quality of the beer coming out of the Australian craft beer community and, um, and for the... I guess the optimism that it gives me that there are still plenty of people out there that we um, we haven't you know uh, inverted commas touched yet. Mate, I absolutely agree. And I, I was lucky enough a couple of weeks ago to be invited to host some beer tastings on a food and wine cruise um, for one of the big cruise uh, ship companies. That was lovely, and you know felt a little bit of trepidation going on the on the ship because they had a you know they had a set supply of beers. So ordinarily, when I do tastings, I like to bring a few things and throw a few different things into the mix. Um, and this was one where I just had uh, a, a set, um, you know, sponsored by CUB, and had to choose from the from the beers that were there. But you know, Prof, it, it really was stepping outside of the craft beer bubble. These were people that were there to experience. And uh, even though I had beers like, you know, I, I did a five course um, chef's table dinner with things like Crown Lager, uh, uh, Wild Jack, uh, Lazy Yak, um, Carlton Black, uh, I was able to, you know, pull together some really nice matches and. You know, it, it was something that I actually think if I'd been given my head to take any beers that I wanted, I would have, you know, taken along what I wanted to drink and not what this audience was um, open to, to having. So I got, you know, terrific feedback and they and a really, really good response from the event. So sometimes, you know, I, I think we do need to just sort of step back and think, well, you know, there are a lot of people still to discover good beer. Yeah, exactly. And it's good to see too that, um, you know, we're able to... I guess have that reach and if nothing else it gives people who perhaps drink those beers normally um, a better appreciation of them in terms of putting them into a food and beer matching context um, which you know it's just it's another it's, it's putting one foot in front of the other taking that next step on their on their beer journey speaking of which there's been a lot of discussion recently about uh, the cbaa's review of its membership structures um, and lion voluntarily withdrew from the uh, craft Beer Industry Association. Uh, I, I guess that does play into the whole, um, you know, uh, ecosystem of, of beer at the moment. Did you have any thoughts about that? That was a big issue while we were on a, on, on holidays. Yeah. Look, I, I, 
obviously plenty of comment around the traps and, and I've spoken to plenty of people about it. And there's everything from, well, you know, they've thrown their toys out of the cot and, and cracked it, you know, before they got kicked out or, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do and all this sort of thing. Um, from, a, a, I guess, a logistics point of view, it's um, it, it leaves a, a fairly large financial gap in the CBIA's coffers. Um, and now whether or not that will be matched or bettered by the number of breweries who um, anecdotally uh, are not part of the CBIA because uh, Lion is part of. And so obviously until, I guess, Matilda Bay goes, uh, or CUB, um, Coca-Cola Amatil slash Yenda slash Australian Beer Company, um, until they all go, they perhaps still stay out. I, I don't know. So does more money come in because, you know, other brewers now say, yep, I'll, I'll be part of the CBIA, whereas before before I wouldn't? Um, wait, we wait to be seen. Yeah, look, I, I'm a little bit the same. I mean, it, ultimately, the, the Craft Beer Industry Association, uh, however you cut the cake um, in terms of membership, it's going to represent um, craft beer. Um, I, I mean, I made the point when when it was announced that I, I, I'm not exactly sure where the feeling of conflict of interest is against big brewers and small brewers. Um, you know, the, the finger is often pointed at contracts, um, and, and, and you can understand that, but big brewers, whether they have the ability to actually go in and install the tap systems and in return get, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the taps, um, they're going to have advantages over small brewers. The, the uh, market is changing and the ability of particularly metropolitan brewers to have that sort of contract and succeed is, is changing. Um, and I just, I do wonder what has been achieved by getting rid of the, the, the big guys because, um, you know, we're, we're, ind independence is the um, title that's being thrown around at the moment or the, the name that's been thrown around for what matters instead of craft beer. But what does independent mean, uh, profit? And it, it's, it's something that I've really grappled with because you can have, and, and we are seeing, you know, a lot of um, speculative capital being uh, injected into the uh, craft beer industry where people who have money that they want to invest to get a good return on are looking at buying craft breweries and I wonder you know when you've got like a venture capital firm that's looking for a you know eight nine ten fifteen percent return on their investment from craft beer how how is that any better um, you know when their, their ultimate business isn't in the brewing industry they just want to see a return how is that preferable over you know, a, a big, multi, admittedly multinational company who, whose entire business interests or substantial business interests are in growing the, the beer capital? Because I think that the, the, the small guys who think that this is going to suddenly change the market because the CBIA is going to lobby um, in, in their interests are, are going to be a little bit disappointed. And as you said, you know, they, there's been an, a big hole left in the, in, in the coffers that could be used. Um, to, to, to grow the brand of better beer. Yeah, and then you touched on it there too. You know, our lobbying power as a as a market category is obviously strengthened by the support of, you know, all the brewers um, and brewers who are effectively, you know, making what, possibly 70% of um, what might be deemed the craft beer market, um, you know, carry a big stick. Yeah, and you know, small brewers are always happy to call on the big guys. You know, like if they've got, um, you know, and, and there are a lot of brewers individually within these big breweries who are happy to, you know, go and visit small craft breweries and talk to them about issues they might be having and offering them some advice, particularly on some of those quality issues that the big brewers are very good at. And it, it, it just makes to me that you know, you, you can't on the one hand say, "Hey guys, would you help us out?" But you know, you, you're not invited to hang out in our clubhouse. Um, yeah, but that said, you know, if, if it is going to be a um, an agency that lobbies for small independent brewers, that's fine. But then you're suddenly going to have some you know very big independent brewers um, who are owned by companies that you know th th this idea of independent being you know Dave and his mates or you know a, you know a, a married couple you know who were opening a, a brewery you know the, the way that the industry started. Um, out as where you've got you know like the, the the Red Hill breweries and the Highgate and the Holgate breweries, which very much are family-owned enterprises. That idea of independence is rapidly changing, and so even having the big guys out, you're going to have some pretty big uh, 
you know, aggressive businesses that are eligible because for all intents and purposes, they are independent. And you know, yeah, if somebody could tell me that this move has fixed um, you know, the imbalance, then I'd be all for it, but I'm, I'm just a little bit unconvinced. But uh, yeah. anyway, look, I, I think we've discussed that one. Um, I, I actually, just on one other thing, I did um, have that chat with uh, Chuck Khan that we put up a, a week or so ago. Um, and it was, you know, I, I think a couple of people raised their head and said, gee, you, you hit him with a wet lettuce. Um, but, you know, it, it spoke for itself. I mean, Chuck is a very passionate guy. He's a very uh, passionate brewer. He does work... Um, for, for a big brewery, so he's always going to come at it from that angle. And I think you know, in, in the past when we've talked about things like contracts, the interviews have been a little bit more combative, and I just didn't see the point in uh, you know, uh, har haranguing him on that occasion. Yeah, and you spoke to Chuck like, just before the C uh, before Lyon left the CBIA? Yeah, so, so that was yeah. after we, um, like James ran a story saying that the CBIA was looking at That's right. yeah. membership, but before he actually made the, yeah. um, the, the decision. So. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just occurred to me that you have a, a pretty good track record of speaking to people just before shit hits fans. <laughs> yes, yes, and of course you're alluding to the Cooper's saga that occurred last week, and, uh, or the, the week before the last. The day before, the day before you speak to him. The, the day before? You, you speak to him the day before. Very proudly, and I'll tell you what, Prof... Did you bring him back and just say, I uh, hope I wasn't out of line with that crack about the Bible Society? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't ask you about the uh, the Bible. But you know something, Prof? I managed to sit with uh, Tim Cooper for an hour and a half, and he didn't once ask me whether I was gay. Um, he, he, he didn't once, you know, sort of uh, you know, sign me up for the anti-gay marriage lobby. Um, I, look, I, I don't want to make too much light of, light of it, because it, it was a really nice chat that I had with him. Um, and Tim Cooper is a genuinely nice guy. Um, and it's not really a beer-related issue, so I don't want to. We probably don't want to go into it too, into it too much. But there were a couple of beer-related angles to it, um, and, and one of those was some of the most strident criticism, and I felt a little bit over the top. Came from a, a couple of you know beer writers um, who I felt had a, a you know an, an agenda to push outside of the actual topic and. You know, as far as I was concerned, Cooper's had you know was completely silent on the issue of gay marriage. Um, they sponsored the Bible Society, um, which they have done for a long time. The Bible Society provides um, Bibles to the Defence Force, um, and as a 200th year celebration, they provided some uh, cans. People who seem to have an issue with elements taken by uh, people within the Bible Society, decided to put two and two together and get seven. Um, and now the, the, these were people that um, have you know, a certain voice within the industry and if they had any issues with um, Coopers, I would argue they had a, you know, a, an easy mechanism to get in touch with Coopers and say, hey, look, you guys have done this, it's a little bit funny. You know, is, is, is this, you know, did you sponsor the video? Do you have a platform on gay marriage? Um, and they, they didn't do that. They, you know, that they decided to, you know, look at a whole lot of stuff that wasn't actually related to Cooper's at all and infer Cooper's position. And it was interesting, something that I didn't know at all, Prof. But you know, Cooper's has been a long-term sponsor of the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Um, yeah, yeah and, the last four years. Yeah, and least. yeah. So you know, I, I would presume from that, and I didn't ask Tim Cooper um, what his attitude to gay marriage was because I didn't actually think it was relevant but he um you, you'd sort of think that a company that sponsors the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras isn't trying to push any religious agenda it, it, itself and so yeah, I, I felt that the reaction from a couple of uh, beer writers was a little bit um, over the top and a little bit unreasonable um and you know disappointing yeah and 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 whilst you know uh, there was a bit of discussion on Twitter, you know, when people were arcing up about the reactions um, to some of these blogs, um, that their, their response was, well, you know, it's free speech, you can't have free speech both ways. And, I, and I'd, I'd sort of take the view that, yes, there is free speech as, as, a, as an element of our civil rights, but with every right comes a responsibility. And so I would like you know, to suggest that the speech should be a little bit more responsible and responsibi responsibility when you have a voice is using that voice responsibly and uh, you know, maybe asking, you know, questions before you uh, start firing off. Because you know, Coopers is a is a venerable old business. You may not like their associations with the Liberal Party, but the Liberal Party is a broad church. There are a whole lot of people in the Liberal Party that support gay marriage. 
the Liberal Party itself. Um, yeah, so anyway, so um, yeah, I think there was a bit of politics involved in it um, that wasn't actually directly related to any of the issues. And I, I, I find it a little bit sad that you can't have a brewery like Cooper's that can sponsor the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras and also donate to the Bible Society without that, you know, being questioned as being, you know, bad business decisions. Because to my view, having, you know, that both of those sides covered is actually the almost the definition of tolerance and debate yep. and, and debate so and, anyway and anti-bigotry yeah. yeah so i mean like I, I just thought it was a little bit sad um particularly given i saw having seen tim the wednesday before i saw him he was doing a dinner in um brisbane on monday night for bruce vegas and yeah just to sort of see the impact that it had had on him um you know, as a really decent man that he had you know physically uh was you know looking like he had uh been through the ringer, and I, I thought that was you know, very, very sad, um, and could have been prevented if people had been a little bit more responsible in their their approach. Yep. But uh, that's no doubt going to get us into a little bit of trouble anyway. No, um, bring it on. Uh, I, I guess the only other thing there's so much has happened in the last couple of months. Um, uh, yeah, I, I should say, Prof, that wasn't really an issue that I, I wanted to get into, but I'm glad I got that off my chest. Um, uh, there has been a lot. Bruce Vegas has just been and gone. Um, has been a, a, a seemingly a very successful week of events, and we've just had the Good Beer Week program launched. Uh, any, anything standing out for you there, Prof? Uh, no, I haven't even really had a chance to um, to look at it yet. Just sort of been looking at, at my um, engagements and um, and planning stuff out. So, uh, but it's certainly the the program looks sensational. Um, I think the crew, led by Kate Patterson and and Chev Karen and, and the crew. Uh, have done a really marvellous job in the, the program. Uh, I think maybe I'm just getting older and grumpier, but it just seems a lot easier to work your way through it, read it, work out what you want to do and sort of plan your event, whether that's because there are fewer events or because it's all it just it's just neater and tighter. But uh, well done to them. Mm. Looking forward to it. Mm. And Gabs is obviously coming up, so we'll be there. We are doing our... Uh Cryer Malt Trade Hub podcast again on the Wednesday of Good Beer Week. So if you're around listeners and you want to come along and have us, it's going to be a really interesting um, uh, discussion panel. We've got a couple of, we've got a mystery brewer uh, from Goose Island coming in who's going to be on, on the Future of Craft Beer panel, um, given that they are soon to be uh, imported by CUB. Um, and apparently we've got a keg of Goose Island that's uh, being donated um, so if you want to come along and try some Goose Island fresh on tap, it could well be your first chance. Um, we've also got, uh, the name escapes me, Prof, and this is where our show notes are going to help us. Um, the uh, founder of uh, um, Sierra Nevada. Um, Ken Grossman. Ken Grossman, that's, that's who I was thinking of. Um, I'm happy to help out. Thanks, thanks, Prof. Uh, who's going to be on a panel looking at sustainability, and that's sustainability within breweries, but also the sustainability of craft. Um, and we're also going to be having a panel looking at um, what are we looking at? In employment and skills development in the uh, craft beer industry. How to get a foot in the door and how to uh, build a career in, in in brewing. So it's going to be a couple of really good discussion panels with some really big names. So yeah, listeners, and, and for those who missed it last year, Matt, we, we probably should just point out um, it's a, a ticketed event. There's a, it's a nice room upstairs at Beer Deluxe, um, but it, it, the three sessions you can sort of come and go kind of thing. Yep, right? and, yeah, exactly. And I, I think the ticketed event is only a name only. I think we've got a couple of dollars on, on it, which will go to charity. And it's just to make sure that we know how many are coming for catering purposes. So it's not a... How many, how many, yeah, how many seats to dust off? And it's running and, from um, a, yeah, a, a 11 to 3. So it's not a huge commitment um, in the middle of the day. So you know, after you've had your recovery breakfast and before you embark on another night of uh, Good Beer Week events, uh, you can come along and uh, check us out, have a chat with... Uh, uh, Matt and Pete, and also uh, our great uh, guests. So, uh, yeah, so uh, get along into the program. Now, Prof, we are running a tighter ship this year. Um, so we might get in and have a bit of a chat to... Now, this was a solo interview I did, but you also had the uh, chance to catch up with our next guest, a uh, fellow by the name of Jason Prolt, who is a hop breeder from the US. Yes. And and, and what did you... Sorry, what did you think of him? Oh, sorry, no... Uh, oh, no, 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 like yes. So I, um, Sorry, I, I, thought, I thought that was your, I thought that was your intro to the in, to the interview. No, oh, Jason, nice. uh, terrific bloke, and um, had a beer with him, and uh, a very it, just a very short discussion with him and uh, he and Justin Fox. He's out as a, a guest at Bintani, and um, 
I just love the fact that it's sort of, um, and I've got his, his card here right in front of me, Select Botanicals Group is the, and, and so it's not just about hops. It's it's really kind of, um, he's kind of really at the, I guess, the, putting the craft into craft beer um, from a, from an ingredients point of view and, and, and looking at provenance and history and um, but also at innovation and, and looking forward. So the short chat that I had um, was terrific. I'm very much lis- looking forward to listening, as I'm sure our listeners are, to uh, what Jason had to say to you. But he's a, yeah, he's a very, very quiet bloke, as you'll... Well, up until you get him talking about hops, you know, he, he's a very quiet, self-effacing guy until you ask him about questions about hops, as you'll hear. Um, this is Jason Perrault. Jason Perrault, welcome to Radio Brews News. Thank you very much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Now, Jason, I, I, I have been researching, uh, obviously you're not a household name in Australia, um, and you're sometimes des- described as uh, you know, one of the great unknowns of the uh, American beer scene, but you have made it to the uh, Men's Journal Top 10 Most Important uh, People in Beer list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I also have read an interview where uh, you said, "If the hops can speak for themselves, I'm happy." So hopefully, uh, ho- hopefully, this isn't too much of a chore speaking to us a little bit about hops. I'm not happy to do it, uh, Jason. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, about you and your family. You're obviously, uh, as I said, not a household name, but you're not. You're also no Johnny Come Lately to the world of hops either. You, you and your family have been hop farming for how many generations now? Uh, so I'm the fourth, and we actually uh, we have the fifth coming up right now. So uh, yeah, we've been doing it a while. We started uh, farming in the Yakima Valley in the early 1900s. And, uh, yeah, we've uh, been able to make a go at it. We, we, uh, my, uh, great grandfather and grandfather, um, planted the first hops in the Peralt family in the Moxie Valley in the 1920s. And, uh, they had, uh, my great grandfather and grandmother had 13 kids. We always joked that they also had 13 acres. <laughs> so that was, that was their workforce, you know, it was thir- uh, one, one acre per kid. And, uh, but, uh, Obviously, with that many kids, uh, you know, won't support that many families. So as the as the kids grew up, they moved along. Um, each of the families kind of went and did their own thing. And my grandfather ended up uh, farming in many different locations around the or a few different locations throughout the valley, and ended up settling where we're at now in the sixties. And uh, so we've we've been in that location since. And you are based in the Yakima Valley uh, in Oregon, if I said that right. No, it's actually in Washington. Oh, Washington. Sorry. Yep, yep, Yakima Valley, Washington. Um, yep, just outside of, uh, we're just south of, of Yakima, which is in the central part of the state. And, and what makes it, it's obviously a very famous, even though I don't know which state it's in, <laughs> it's, it's obviously a very, very famous uh, um, hop growing region. What makes it so special for hops? Well, the, the, one of the primary reasons is the, uh, just where it's located uh, latitude-wise. So hops are a very day-length specific or very sensitive to daylight so they, they require a certain region of the world that's why you'll find most hops growing you know between like the 45th and 50th parallel roughly around the world whether it be the northern or southern hemisphere and so that's why there's very discrete regions of hop production but but the other thing that makes the yakima valley very nice is it's very arid so we're, we're essentially a high desert we um we get only seven to ten inches of precipitation a year so it's very dry, but because of the snowpack up in the mountains and the Cascade Mountains above the valley, we're able to uh, store water in the form of the snowpack and then reservoirs and then the water table. So we're able to irrigate. And so that arid, those arid conditions with the, the, the uh, long summer days uh, provide the you know, an optimum uh, condition. Plus, we have this rich volcanic soil in the valley as well. And so it, that really provides ideal conditions because that uh, hops are very susceptible to fungal diseases such as powdery mildew and downy mildew, and those uh, those dry conditions aren't conducive to those diseases. So it gives us a little bit of an edge. When you say it's uh, volcanic, am I remembering correctly that it's it was in the area affected by Mount St Helens? Uh, yeah, yeah, we certainly were uh, affected by Mount St Helens. That was uh, that was quite an event back in 1980. Uh, that's just one example of, you know, over a geological time of, of an event that, that shaped the, uh, the soil profile. Uh, the entire area uh, has, you know, been impacted over the eons by volcanic events, 
the breakdown of those, uh, the uplifting of the, uh, you know, the from underneath the earth, and it's that that's really what's uh, driven the driven value of the soil. Did did uh, did the Mount St Helens, uh, apart from the obvious damage at the time, has that given a a boost to the nutrition or made it you know, uh, reinforced its uh, you know benefit? To, for hop growing, or was it just a a, a very disruptive event? Well, I, I think it had probably a bit of an impact on the texture of the soil. I mean, uh, you know, you add that that grainy, ashy uh, material to the soil, plus the the mineral value of it. So I, I do think it had an impact. Um, what that is, I, I mean, I can only speak anecdotally. I do know that um, I was I was pretty young at the time. I think I was only five or six when the mountain blew, um, and. Uh, but, uh, you know, as my father tells me that we did see a boost in, in the hop uh, growth that year in the yield of the plants. So I, I think it certainly had a short-term positive impact. And, uh, and even in the, the following years, he said that the yield seemed to be better and that the plants were healthy. So, yeah, I do think there was an impact. And certainly in certain areas, you can, particularly up in the mountains, you can still find uh, those layers of ash. Even though your family are hop growers, um, you are a specialist hop breeder. Yes. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. So uh, my family, along with uh, two other families, the Smiths and the Carpenters, uh, back in the late 80s, um, had a, a grand vision to, to create a direct connection from uh, grower to brewer, essentially uh, cutting out the middleman from the traditional hop supply chain and, and being a direct source for hops. And part of that was the recognition that, um, you know, the front end of the supply chain uh, where all the efficiencies for the supply chain are built really comes down to variety. So they started breeding hops at that time as well under the guidance of uh, Chuck Zimmerman. And back then I was in high school, um, you know, just a young man. And, and I worked as kind of a technician for Chuck. I mean, I came very close. We spent a lot of time together. I worked with them within the breeding program and, uh, um, uh, you know, just helping them plant the plots, uh, make crosses, things like that. Well, uh, and I went off to college and even during the summers, I helped them out with that. And then when I got done with college uh, at the time, the, the hop market was very depressed. Um, I, I'd never wanted to do anything but hops. I, I had every intention of coming back to hops, uh, you know, all through high school and college, but, uh, when I got out the, so, uh, so r- roughly when is this that you're talking about? So that would have been 1997 that I got out of college, and the hot market was in a, uh, a depressed state at the time. And so my, uh, uh, you know, I, I wanted to farm, but at the same time there wasn't a, a lot of opportunity. I mean, my, my father would have welcomed me back, of course, but at the same time I, I knew it was, it was a bit of a burden on the farm. And at the same time, Chuck was, uh, he was retiring, and he had come to me and asked me if I'd be willing to take over the program uh, the breeding program because I, I probably had more of an understanding of, of, of the program and its processes than anybody else because of the work I'd done with them in the past. And so I, I, you know, I, it took a little bit of soul searching because my heart was in farming at the time, but you know, I, 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 I accepted and went back to school and got a master's degree in genetics and, um, came back and I've been running the program full time since 1997. And so it, it was at that same time when Chuck and I were working together in the late nineties that we selected, uh, Simcoe Warrior, and uh, uh, well, he'd previously selected Octanum, and then we have another one that has since uh, kind of faded uh, away, and that was Sadus. So those, those were the initial selections out of the program from those same crosses that I was working with Chuck in the, in the, uh, the early 90s on. So it was uh, uh, kind of a full circle, so to speak. But yeah, that's, that, that was kind of the, the first output from the program was, was back then. And uh, so, uh, and there's you know, a lot of history in between then, then and now, but uh, that's really what brought us to where we're at. And I guess the the craft industry, and particularly the explosive growth we've seen in the uh, last decade, has fundamentally changed not just uh, the beer scene, but also the uh, the, the, the hop scene and the, 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 the traits that you are breeding for these days are, are, I guess, very different from what you would have been breeding for in the early 90s? Oh, absolutely. So in the in the early and all through the 90s, for that matter, um, the focus was uh, essentially on uh, a high alpha breeding. So we were really looking for efficiency um, from the high alpha side because that's what 
where our demand was. The demand for U.S. ops was squarely for alpha, and we needed something that was more efficient and more competitive. That really formed the basis of the program back then. Uh, with that said, we never lost sight of the the uh, that quest for aroma hops, you know, because it aroma hop uh, breeding is is much more subjective. It employs much more of the art of breeding, which is something as a breeder you get excited about. Uh, alpha is great and everything, and, and it's a challenge to breed for it, but it's uh, it's much more uh, uh, objective and, and numbers based than uh, and, uh, subjective and, and, and artistic based, like aroma would be, and so. Uh, Back then, though, to get an aroma hop accepted into a brewery, because most of our customers were the major breweries. This was, um, you know, we still, uh, back then, we still had a lot of large regional breweries in the U.S. Uh, they, were, they were still multinational companies, but they, they hadn't all consolidated like they have today. And so each of those companies, while they appreciated aroma hops, uh, to get them to switch to a new aroma hop uh, was, uh, was, was, was difficult. It was a challenge, to say the least. And even you take something like Simcoe, you know, Simcoe is actually a great story because Simcoe, we, we advanced because of its alpha levels. We advanced because its alpha levels actually combined with co- low cohenulone at the time. Um, and even now there's, there's a, you know, many people that believe or, or firmly believe that low cohenulone imparts a, a less harsh bitterness than higher cohenulone. So we thought we had a winner from the alpha and low cohenulone combination with this, uh, this great pungent aroma problem was the aroma was too pungent and so we couldn't uh hard to believe but back in the early you know late 90s early 2000s we couldn't give a pound of it away and you know we were we were pretty excited about it and we actually expanded up to about 40 acres and uh and just kept building inventory because we could not get rid of it so after about three years of building inventory we finally decided enough's enough let's pull it out and so we actually pulled it out we almost pulled it all out but we decided to leave a couple acres in just in case and then uh, decided to focus on that inventory and get it pushed real hard. So it really, uh, you know, Simcoe almost didn't exist. We almost uh, pulled it out completely because we could not sell, the, sell it at all. And it wasn't until the, you know, the mid-2000s, uh, 2005, 2006, that it really started to kind of get some uh, notoriety amongst certain brewers, almost like a, almost like a cult following, so to speak, amongst uh, certain brewers and, and, uh, and beer aficionados, so to speak. And, so it was, uh, you know, and then after that, after it started to really catch on, it just kind of exploded starting around 2010, 2011, 2012. But uh, so, yeah, so that's just a great example of, of the change from where we were back in the 90s to where we are now. Now it's all about aroma hops. Now it's all about what can we provide in terms of aromatics and flavors. And the brewers, obviously craft brewers are much more uh, creative, much more willing to take a risk on something new. And in fact, it's almost required of them. You know, I, I would say it is required of them if they're going to be successful. So that it makes our job as breeders uh, you know, quite a bit easier. It must be hard when you see that, uh, you know, change in mindset um, and, and realizing how fashion, you know, fashion um, come and goes, that you don't have to just deal with the weather, you have to deal with cha- uh, changing fashions as well. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's probably our, our biggest challenge, Matt, is, is the fact of the matter is it's a 10-year process. We can shorten that maybe by a couple of years. So at a bare minimum, you're at an eight-year process from the time we make a cross where we have a variety to release. So and none of us have a crystal ball. You know, I always say that if you would ask me, you know, if you would have told me 10 years ago what IPA would be in, in, in the States, I would have laughed. I would have said there's no way. Um, but so we, we, we can't predict what's going to happen. What we have to do is, is, is really take advantage of the inherent, uh, variation we have in the program and make sure that we're, uh, we're being creative and innovative with what we're selecting. So it's almost a chicken egg type, type thing. You know, we can, we can respond to the demands of the industry, hopefully by having a wide breadth of, of variability in the program. But hopefully, you know, maybe we can even drive things a little bit. If we're coming out with something innovative, something new for the brewers to use, maybe that can that can uh, drive the trends a little bit as well. But it's not just a matter of the, the 10-year time between breeding or between actually selecting out parents and then getting a production hop. I can't think of too many other... Uh, careers where you have such a high failure rate i've seen you seen it described that you know you throw out a million of your crosses before you finally get one that you want to work with 
Yeah, it's it's uh, we, I always joke that it's a. Uh, and Chuck used to tell me this all the time that he he would tell me that I've got into the, one of the most depressing careers that you could possibly choose because you you actually uh, throw away ninety nine point nine nine percent of your life's work. You know, so out of all that you do, you, you if you have one success, you, you're happy. So it's kind of it is kind of a strange uh, strange dynamic. But I guess for all of that disappointment, having you know one beer made with a hop that you've got to market must be uh, pretty rewarding oh absolutely uh you know I mean, even as we're as we're talking i'm, I'm you know drinking a beer that, that you can tell has been at least influenced by by hops and that's uh it is it's very gratifying when you when you taste the beer an amazing beer that's been made with you know simcoe mosaic um you know these, these hops are they're very distinctive and you, you taste them right away and and uh, yeah, it, it, it's very satisfying. And, and then to hear not just brewers' uh, satisfaction with that and excitement about that, but uh, beer drinkers. You know, I think that's maybe the most gratifying thing is those conversations I have with uh, beer drinkers about uh, them talking about specific varieties. That's not something that would happen, uh, you know, a few years ago. Uh, in fact, it'd be unheard of. Hops for hops, and uh, that's not the case now. Now we, we actually touch the consumer, and that's a uh, that's a pretty big deal. They very much are the rock star ingredient at the moment. Do you think that can last? I, I think as long as beer, um, as long as beer remains true to itself in terms of you know uh, the the four main ingredients, I do think that we've established uh, a bit of a new normal in that hops. I don't think will ever be relegated back to just being that that slight nuanced spice because uh, I think that they've become such the forefront that even those, those, those styles that once didn't rely on hops can still subtly rely on them to differentiate themselves a little bit. So I think they'll always there. I think they will have for going forward, play a more important role than they traditionally did. Um, whether or not they'll, they'll play as big a role as they, they are right now. That's, that's another question. I, I, I won't say that for sure, but, uh, but I certainly think they will, they've kind of solidified and cemented their place in terms of the importance of the brewing process uh, versus where they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. With a, a 10-year product development cycle, you would have quite a few hops uh, at various stages of trial at the moment. Is there anything that you can tell us about some of the characters or some of the um, you know, flavours and aromas that they're exhibiting in, in the at least in the development stages that we can look forward to in the next couple of years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple that actually become are starting to actually already make a name for themselves. So a couple of sisters, 438 and 472. Uh, so HBC 438 is a really, uh, really amazing hop, big stone fruit, tropical, uh, kind of herbal in the form of mint. Um, just an amazing, really nice hop, a little bit of uh, coconut and, and vanilla in there. Um, but what's, what's really great about it is all those flavors translate into the beer and that's not always the case i'd say nine times out of ten when we, we develop a new hop you might smell something great in the hop but it doesn't translate the same well the same into the beer um but this one does and so what you smell in the hop you smell in the beer and or, or taste in the beer and it so that's really amazing and, and very impactful it's sister 472 has some of those similar characters but the the the, the more vanilla coconut woody character is much more pronounced and so it comes across almost as a barrel-aged character, and even to the extent that it provides a bit of a, 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 a you know, like a tannic mouthfeel. So, you know, in, in some blind trials, we've actually had people pick it out as a barrel-aged beer, and that's solely from the from the, the hop. So that's pretty exciting. That's something that I don't think we've ever seen with hops. So I consider that very, uh, very innovative. And then we've got a, a couple more that you know, from the fruit character. Obviously, hops is have established themselves quite well as providing fruit character to beer, but uh, some of the ones we're looking at now provide it to the extent that you would think that the fruit was actually in the beer. Like we have one right now, for example, that provides a grapefruit aroma that you would swear was from straight up grapefruit juice. That's pretty exciting when we can do that because I'd much rather, uh, you know, know, it's becoming quite popular to add fruit to to IPAs, which I'm fine with, but I would much, I, I think it'd be pretty pretty uh, kick-ass if we could do that with with hops rather than with adding fruit and i think uh in in many ways we can with breeding and so that's kind of some of the directions we're looking at much more of a purist view uh, view there um which i have have to say i tend to agree with you um 
you, you've reeled off a couple of the experimental numbers. At what stage of the process uh, do they get an evocative name like Simcoe or uh, Topaz or uh, you know Galaxy in the case of an Australian hop? Right, right. So they, they start out as a, uh, you know, you got this big long, it's a 10-digit number, big long selection number, tells me everything I need to know in terms of who his parents are or her parents are. Uh, so who her parents are and, and where they're where they're located in the in the plot. After um, about the oh, sixth year of, of development, they'll get a, a shorter number, and that's just the accession number, and that's where you get the, right now we're in the, you know, I think we're in the 800s or something like that. Um, but after a few years of sitting at that, what we call the elite stage, where we're close, we're on the cusp of release, um, they'll, still, they'll stay with that number variety. But once we choose to release, so after that 10 years, that's when we'll, we'll decide to, to, to pick a, a, a brand or a trademark to go with that, that variety. And so it takes, you know, it's not until the very end until we make that final decision to commercialize. Now, we're recording this in the middle of March 2017, so it's obviously uh, the southern uh, hop harvest uh, period. What brings you down to Australia for the harvest? I actually came down and, uh, you know, wanted to visit our friends at Bintani and then uh, uh, thought as long as I was coming down here to visit them, it'd be a great opportunity to, to see hop harvest. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny, but in uh, all the years I've been involved with hop, I've never seen hop harvest outside the Yakima Valley because we've always, we were always so busy at that time. So in the Northern hemisphere, I can't ever get away. And I just never had the opportunity to visit a uh, hop growing in the, the Southern hemisphere this time of year. So it's, uh, I thought it was a great opportunity to come down and check it out. I've always heard great things about the area. So, And and you've obviously been doing quite a bit. You, you mentioned Bintani. Tell us a little bit about the projects you're working with Bintani. Uh, so, you know, Bintani has been a great partner for us. They're a distributor for Yakima Chief Hop Union. Um, so I talked earlier about uh, you know the three families forming uh, a direct connection from from uh, from from grower to brewer. That started out back then as a little company that was a uh, uh, Sunrise Hop Marketing and Yakima Valley Hop Storage. That evolved as we brought more growers in in the 90s into what became Yakima Chief, and then uh, Yakima Chief back in 2014 uh, merged with uh, Hop Union to form Yakima Chief Hop Union, and so. It's a 100% grower-owned company, and in order to fully reach different areas of the world, such as Australia, the South Pacific, we rely on uh, strategic partnerships uh, in the form of distributors like Bintang. So they're a, they're a valued uh, distributor for Yakima Chief Hop Union hops in the area. And so we work, work real closely with them, making sure we're getting the right product in the right place, um, right quality. And uh, and then also working on uh, projects like uh, uh, Fortnite, which is a is a custom blend that developed in conjunction with them. Tell us a little bit about that. We've had some stories on Brews News about that, but uh, tell us in your words uh, what the, the the Fortnite project is all about. Well, Fortnite's really, you know, it's about taking the top quality hops, the best of the best, and putting them together in a combination that you wouldn't necessarily be able to achieve through traditional means, through breeding or at least not in the time frame that that uh, that we're looking at, you know. So we're we're able to take top quality hops, um, do sensory analysis, select specific lots for it, and hit some target values with regard to, uh, you know, whether it be uh, alpha oils or or um, aromatics, and uh, and put together a really great product that is custom uh, to the the customers. It, it, it's an interesting notion because we, we see all sorts of blending going on in, in, in the beer world, but this is, uh, and, and even hops using, uh, uh, brewers using different hop additions to the kettle, but this is a, a, a blended uh, hop um, that, that is pre-blended for them. Is, is that a fair way of describing it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's basically a pre-blended uh, product, um, you know, and its value, I think, is derived, though, from the standpoint that what's never been done before is, is, is taking blending hops that are the top of the line quality hops to create a product that is, is, is a, is a premium product. And so it's a little bit different approach than, than been done in the past. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, achieving homogeneity is, is another goal of, of taking a blended product and being able to, uh, adjust the mix, uh, to bring that homogeneity to the product. So it's, uh, there, there's definitely a value created there. 
Now, you, you've spent a little bit of time in Australia um, already. Uh, I, I won't uh, be unfair and ask you uh, what beers you liked or how our beers compare, but have you noticed any trends in, on the Australian brewing scene that you know, maybe contrast with what's going on in the States at the moment? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, what really sets uh, the States apart right now still is, is, is of course, IPA. And it, I don't think that uh, what I've noticed anyway is that uh, necessarily the the, uh, the extremes of the IPA movement have quite been embraced down here. Uh, what I have noticed is some really, really well-balanced, very drinkable, lower alcohol beers. And uh, I really, uh, I really appreciate that. I mean, that I've had some amazing, uh, uh, very drinkable um, beers that have great hop character and are very well balanced between the, the, the hops and malt. So, uh, I think that's probably the biggest, uh, the biggest difference is I think there's still a, a taste for hops, but it's maybe not as extreme as, as what we've, we've done in the States. And that's an interesting, uh, effect of our local market. A lot of our brewers talk about the, um, government excise that's levied on beer and how it's volumetric and right. it punishes bigger beers because of the higher alcohol, um, tax on, on bigger beers, mm-hmm. but it does seem to have, uh, you know, almost um you know there's almost been uh what, what a evolutionary pressure on them to get better at lower alcohol um brewing to uh yeah, fill right. those flavor needs that's just challenging you know that's uh that's a that's a credit to the brewers here in australia at the same time i have seen you know, peaks in the, the various uh, beer american beer meter that i read that see you know lagers are having a bit of a moment in the sun and there, there do seem to be um you know rays of uh sunlight um on some of the lower alcohol beer. oh yeah oh yeah i think i think in the states it's a, it, we're also seeing that trend i mean we're, we're you look at the large you know the fastest growing brands and many of them are the lower alcohol either session style ipas or or lagers uh, you know that's uh certainly a trend and uh i think it uh, uh, i think it's a welcoming trend i think uh you know as a hop grower i i certainly don't mind a, a heavily hop beer that's higher in alcohol it just means we're going to sell more hops right <laughs> hey, actually, do you sell? Um, you know, if there was a big swing away from IPAs, would that harm the uh, craft beer market, or is just the growth in craft beer, the continuing growth in craft beer, going to soak up um, all of the extra acreage that's been planted? Yeah, if there. Was, I think if there was a large swing away from IPA, it would certainly have an impact. I mean, uh, when you look at the hopping rates of, uh, of IPAs. And you go, you know, two, three, four pounds per barrel, and if you were to back away from that, that's that's significant. Um, that that could have a huge impact. So yeah, I'd, I'd hate to see a, an overnight change because I don't. It would not soak up all the all the acreage we've added because the the U.S. hop growers has been very responsive to to the changes in, in brewers' needs, um, and we have a history of doing so. You know, as new acres are required, hop growers are pretty quick to respond. Um, in the in the Pacific Northwest, so I think with as much as we've added over the last few years, we're starting to see a bit of a balance form. Um, and I think if you saw a major disruption in the form of a, a, a mass shift away from IPA, it would certainly have an impact. So I hope if it does happen, which we can't control those things, if it does happen, I would hope that it happens slowly. Terrific. Oh, Jason Prolt, thank you very much for joining us on uh, Radio Brews News. Uh, enjoy your time in Australia, and uh, sorry I couldn't actually sit and record this over a beer with you. Yeah, well, I was drinking one with you, whether uh, whether you could see me or not. So uh, <laughs> I, pre- I appreciate talking to you. It's been, a, it's been great. Terrific, Jason. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. There we go, Prof. A lovely fellow. I would have loved to have sat down and had a beer, so you were very lucky. Uh, you know, he, he certainly knows his hops and is very, very passionate about it. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, yeah, um, mate. Now we we do have a couple of uh, interviews. I, I do have an interview in the can with uh, Tim Cooper, but we might wait a little bit longer um, before we play that. Um, wait for the dust to settle. The water's calm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I, I've uh, caught up. Um, I've got a couple of interviews that uh, we'll do, and we've got a couple. Uh, so we will just get on, listeners. We are endeavouring to be back uh, weekly. I know we got some emails from our regular um, listeners and particularly our producers, um, but we are back and uh, you will be getting your money's worth and hopefully thanks to our new producer, 
even better quality. Um, we'll, our delicativity will be going up to 11. Um, so if you, if you do like the show and you want to help us pay for our expensive uh, producers and uh, high quality uh, audio uh, technology, you can jump online, um, go to the website and it'll tell you how to become a producer, either an executive producer for $10 a month, a producer for $5 a month, or just make a donation to help us out and uh, you know, keep us going. Um, Prof, we have updated some merch. Um, we sold a few t-shirts. Uh, shout out to Phil Cook, who was given a Bruise News t-shirt um, at, at Christmas, which I thought was a nice gift. Oh, lovely. Good to see him being, being worn across the Dutch. Exactly. We might have to do a special, you know, Pops and Brit and Novelty and Height, hey, well, we, we might t-shirt or something. <laughs> yeah. Or just get Phil on to Sorry, have a bit of a LPR. chat. Um, but we, we also yeah, have Caps yeah, well, had a request I, I think for... We Phil, Phil's been on a list for, for quite a while, so... Well, it's not that we haven't spoken to him in the past. He, he, he is a friend of the show, um, so it'd be good to, to have a bit of a chat with him. Um, uh, you know, yeah, just find out how things are going in New Zealand. There's been a lot happening in New Zealand with takeovers and uh, various other things, so it'd be good to get him on. But, yeah, so, listeners, if you do like the show and would like to buy some merch, we've got the Hops, Hops, Hops and Hype. Uh, we've got Brett... Uh, what have we got? Quality, Consistency, Novelty Hops and Style. And we got a couple of things. We had a request. We even have hats now, Prof. So we got truckers caps with the same slogans on. If you don't want a t-shirt, um, what else? I, I guess that's about it, Prof. Uh, we've got no other formalities that we need to do. Jump online if you like the show. Jump online. Give us a review on iTunes. Uh, shout us. Shout out on Twitter um, or send us a, a, an email with guests that you would like to hear on. Uh, Prof, what have you got coming up? Uh, I've got uh, Bendigo. Craft Festival this weekend and then um, a little bit of a break and then we're right into a whole heap of stuff. And then obviously preparing for the AIBAs and leading into Good Beer Week. So bring it on. I should say you and Kira Lee have been invited back for your third outing at the AIBAs. Uh, third individually, second together, yes. Second together. So, well, even so, Paul McCura was the first to get a repeat performance. You guys are now on the trifecta. That's it. Congratulations. Very well deserved. Um, yeah, well, we might sail on out of it. Nice tight show of around about an hour, Prof. Good to be back uh, talking to you. Look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah. Yeah, uh, shall do. See you, listeners. We'll see you then. Oh, we won't see you. You'll, you'll hear us. We won't see you or hear you. Well, we could hear them. We, we, we've got the technology. Mate, I can't hear the girl sitting next to you. What chance have I got to hear in people in Adelaide. Well, they could phone in. Oh, what have I told you before about phoning it in? And we're back. <laughs>